To use a web application, you probably open a web browser or a mobile app. To access an Ethereum application, many people use an Ethereum browser. In previous episodes, we explored MetaMask and Mist, which are Ethereum browsers for the desktop. And in today's episode, we explore Status, a mobile Ethereum browser. Status founders Jared Hope and Oscar Thorin join the show to talk about the engineering of Status, how Status connects to the Ethereum blockchain, what people want from Ethereum applications, and the engineering of the Status app itself. Status is built using React Native, which is working out quite well for them. We also talk about some of the mechanics of an ICO. Status has raised $100 million in their ICO for the Status Network token. An ICO differs from raising equity in several ways. Rather than representing a direct stake in the business, a token represents a stake in the ecosystem that is being built. Through their ICO, Status raised much more than a startup at a similar stage in a company's development would have raised, and the vesting schedule for the founders is two years. After two years, their stake will be liquid. This illustrates another way that an ICO can contrast with a traditional startup equity offering. In a traditional startup, there is not a liquid open market for equity prior to the company going public. This can be good, as it forces the founders to maintain their skin in the game until they have proven the business. But forcing owners to have the equity be liquid can also be bad if the founders are in a position where their equity is illiquid, then they may have too much pressure. They should be able to take money off the table, arguably, if the business model is doing okay, but maybe the economics haven't completely worked out, so the company can't go public. So there are pros and cons to the classic equity model versus the ICO model, the ICO model being highly liquid, the classic equity model being less liquid. In the interview, Jared explained that he anticipates the open source community around status to be contributing more to the status app development over time because the community has a stake in the app by purchasing the status token. I hope this is the case because it would be very cool to see more consumer-facing open source applications. Status is a consumer-facing app, and this conversation made me think that it is kind of strange that there's so much open source software for building applications. If you think about application components like React Native, Kubernetes, Kafka, but there are much fewer consumer-facing open source apps. There's not really an open source Uber or an open source Facebook or an open source Google. And it's worth wondering, why is that? Maybe that's because we are still in the days where somebody has to be paying for the back-end compute layer. There needs to be, today, a centralized actor that is paying for the hosting of Google, for example. The open-source code itself is cheap to host today, which is great, but if you want to run the actual application infrastructure, it still requires that owner to pay for it. So it kind of makes sense that consumer applications are still developed and maintained by central actors. With Ethereum, that might change. We might see more consumer-facing open-source decentralized applications, which would be quite cool, and that is certainly the world that Status.im is hoping for. It's what they're working towards. It's what we discuss in today's episode. And speaking of consumer-facing open-source applications, 
You can check out the Software Engineering Daily app on iOS or Android. We've got all 700 episodes of the show that are in the app. We've got tons of episodes on blockchains, business, distributed systems, tons of other topics. And if you want to become a paid subscriber to Software Engineering Daily, you can hear all of our episodes without ads. So you can subscribe at softwaredaily.com. And again, all of that code is open source. So if you're looking for an open source community to be a part of, come check out github.com slash software engineering daily. Let's get on with the episode. Jared Hope and Oscar Thorin are developers of status.am. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having us. Today we're talking about Status IM, which is an Ethereum client for mobile phones that you both work on. Before we talk about mobile clients specifically, what is an Ethereum client? Yeah, good question. I guess generally speaking, uh, an Ethereum client is anything that is able to interface with the Ethereum network, and it probably has some degree uh, of uh, user interface as well. However, it's very broad and, and the manner of which they connect to the Ethereum network and the manner in which they uh, present themselves to humans can be greatly varied. So we have mobile apps, we have desktop apps that do not interface with the Ethereum blockchain, like Slack, for example. You know, Slack on the desktop is pretty much the same as Slack on mobile, but it's a smaller interface. Are we interacting with different applications from the mobile client versus the desktop client, or is it pretty much the same? When we're talking about a client, I think it depends on what context we're talking about it in. So for example, we have the sort of full implementations of Ethereum, such as like Go Ethereum or Parity or the C++ version, or even the Java implementation. And at this level, really, they're kind of like a library that just connects to a peer-to-peer network. On the other sort of spectrum, you have uh, much more sort of user-facing interfaces, such as desktop applications like Mist or or browser plugins like MetaMask, or even mobile applications like uh, Status itself. Uh, But then some of these actually connect via sort of HTTP gateways, which then connect to, say, full implementations. We decided to make some very early design decisions to basically do the best of both worlds in both creating a very easy-to-use user interface, but at the same time, running a full implementation of Ethereum directly on your uh, mobile device. Go into that in a little more detail. What does it mean to run a full implementation on your mobile device? Sure. So one of the large problems that sort of blockchains and decentralized technologies are are trying to solve is this concept of like disintermediation. Currently, everything that you do on the internet tends to go through like a a server of some kind or or some kind of gatekeeping uh, service. And when this happens, there's some some problems that are involved uh, and it mostly revolves around trust. However, with the advent of uh, public blockchains, we can actually create essentially uh, trustless systems. So in the Ethereum network, you have multiple nodes, right? And they can have varying capabilities, but they're all equal nodes in some sense. You have full nodes, you have nodes that do mining, you have light nodes and so on. But it's just a matter of so how much you need to verify. So with the light nodes, for example, you, you don't have the entire blockchain history, but you still have sort of, you can verify the headers, so you still know you have a consistent state. So we're running sort of a light node on a mobile device, which means that you there's no difference in the, in the trust model. Maybe there's just a lack of some information, like historical transactions, for example. So we're running one of those on the device. Right. So 
you run a light client in contrast to a system that might use a remote client. And I think one example of that, I think MetaMask uses kind of a remote client. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So instead of just keeping a, a light node on the user's computer, or the user's device, MetaMask uses this remote node. And what's the difference? Why doesn't MetaMask use a light client? So MetaMask, it's a difference because you are, you're still using these sort of HTTP interfaces where you're trusting some central server to provide you some kind of state. Whereas uh, if you're running an actual node, it's a separate process and you're sort of verifying the hashes directly. So it's a slight difference in terms of trust model, I would say. Andrew, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, different in terms of this trust model. I imagine it has some historical roots as well. Back when we all started doing these things, light clients weren't even possible. So I imagine that uh, MetaMask chose the most uh, sort of easiest route to, to build these technologies because um, building them completely decentralized from the get-go is an immensely difficult undertaking. If I use a web browser today, there are plenty of different web applications that I interact with. There's LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, my banking applications. What are the Ethereum-based applications that people are interacting with on a regular basis today? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's it's pretty early days uh, for a lot of diff- uh, different dApps. I guess prediction markets are one, such as Gnosis, and you've got Maker. Actually, I don't know how to answer that question. It's so... It's such early days and everything's still being built. What's actually production? So, so it depends on what level you look at it. Because if you look at blockchains more generally, you could say that's sort of store, a store and transaction of value. That's sort of one general application, right? And then you have the funding application, which has happened with Ethereum and ICOs and so on. Uh, so those are the two sort of most uh, real world usage kind of things. And then you have more frivolous things like CryptoKitties and so on. But as Terry said, it's so early days that we still don't know sort of what the most fruitful uh, directions will, will be, like sort of what dApps will be successful, so to speak. And that's something I think we'll see more of these next few years, sort of exactly what form that will take. Yeah, keep in mind, at this stage, like uh, a lot of the blockchain technologies itself and its surrounding peer-to-peer protocols are still being worked on. Uh, things are very experimental. So, for example, things like certain crowd sales and even crypto kitties uh, tend to slow down these networks because they are not designed to scale. So the largest thing that we're all talking about and trying to work on at the moment is how we can actually get blockchain scalability. Mm. So the main purpose today for a mobile Ethereum client, would you say it's it's the wallet functionality, having a mobile wallet? Yeah, absolutely. Like I think in terms of cryptocurrencies, transactions of value are one of the core sort of promises but a client itself, it should be an expression of what its blockchain is capable of. So, for example, in Bitcoin, uh, wallets make a lot of sense because it is really about sending and receiving some kind of value. Uh, whereas in Ethereum, transactions tend to be a lot more like uh, state changes in a database. What that looks like and how you manage that uh, can be entirely different. Hmm. So when you imagine five or ten years down the line... What do you envision people will be using their mobile Ethereum clients for? A very good question. How I envision things is a lot of IoT devices will probably be running some kind of uh, trustless forms of uh, decentralized networks. A lot of our sort of infrastructure in our society will be running on this as well. I imagine whatever our personal computing devices look like at that time, whether that is a, a mobile device in a smartphone form factor or not, 
will be used to interface with, uh, say, smart cities. Another component of that is also the sort of messaging part of the application, which is done with, with Whisper, which is also part of the Ethereum sort of sub-protocols. An interesting part there is that if you look at traditional social networks and instant messages and so on, uh, often they have some kind of some model where, where the user is the product that's being sold to advertisers in some form, or it's sort of it's not clear exactly how the economic incentives work. Whereas with, with something like uh, Ethereum and Status, we can actually create a decentralized sort of messaging system and, and social network where individual sort of users and stakeholders pay for specific services and so on. And I think that's an interesting change where instead of the user being the product, sort of they can take part in the system and they, the incentives are sort of more aligned and you can have micropayments and things like this. Because I think a lot of there's lots of interesting directions in terms of decentralized social networks and instant messaging and so on, but they're kind of more run like charities in a way, which is maybe not the most sustainable solution to actually getting something that's user-friendly and works great for end users. Yeah, I mean, we saw that the ELO model of a kind of a open non-for-profit social network didn't quite work. Whisper is a decentralized way of doing messaging. Explain how Whisper differs from something like Telegram or WhatsApp, for example. So Whisper is, uh, as I said, completely decentralized and it's built on sort of the peer-to-peer layer of the Ethereum protocol. So you have you have Ethereum and then you have sort of the main uh, blockchain protocol and then you have Whisper and then Swarm, which is for file storage, but they're all using sort of the same, connecting via the same nodes and so on. And Whisper itself, it's kind of a bit like a distributed hash table or like a like a broadcast protocol. And it's, it's novel in that it's completely identity-based, which is sort of useful for maintaining, I guess, privacy and, and sort of darkness, I would say, in routing. So the way it works is essentially you have a topic, which is just some, some bits of information, which is some intent of who, roughly who should receive it. You can also choose to have like almost no topic or the same topic. And then you have an, a key, so that could be a symmetric key or public key. And the way it works is that all these messages are forwarded to all the nodes and then only uh, the person or the people who are able to decrypt the message actually reads it. So this way, it's only it's identity-based in the sense that you need to have the actual key to read the message. No one can tell if it's addressed to you specifically because every, every node gets it. So it's, it's very different, I would say, from other applications which rely on central services and so on. So it is, it's an entirely different thing, I would say. Yeah. Does Whisper operate by interfacing with a smart contract or does it create transactions in some other way on the Ethereum blockchain? No, it's a separate sub-protocol. So uh, we all know the Ethereum uh, public blockchain and that's a specific sub-protocol of a peer-to-peer transport called DevP2P. So Ethereum is is more than just a blockchain. Uh, It also provides a a messaging communication layer for any kind of communication a dApp needs to make um, that has to be faster than creating blocks uh, and obviously cheaper, as well as uh, decentralized file storage, which is uh, called Swarm. And this is something like you can imagine like BitTorrent, except it has an incentivization layer. So seeders have a, a reason to keep files around. So you can Imagine this being like a Web 3.0 stack where you can uh, deploy your quotation mark server-side logic as smart contracts. You can have real-time communication, well, not near real-time communication over, over Whisper, and you can have your actual HTML or JavaScript or whatever your DAP interface is, is deployed into a, a decentralized file storage. Hmm. 
So again, we're talking about Whisper, which is a protocol for doing chatting. And But the main topic of this conversation is status, which is the Ethereum client that you guys are working on. And just to describe it, it's, it's a, a really nice UI of a mobile client, and you can do things like chat within it. You can find decentralized apps to interface with, and <laughs> once there are decentralized apps that people want to interact with from a mobile phone, that will probably be useful. The biggest transformational shift that's happening right now uh, is currently we have this model of, uh, okay, a service is free, but at the end of the day, we these service providers have to pay, uh, pay the bills. They have to pay their, serv- their server costs and keep the entire service running. And this model naturally creates a bit of a problem in, in such that they have to either monetize their user base. In many ways, I like to think of it as sort of digital feudalism, uh, where you have a lord and uh, their villages, and they end up having to tax them in some form. And how we see this at the moment is either through advertising networks, which then gives these service providers another problem is how do they make better customers out of their existing user base and how do they get them to buy more or at least click more ads. And then we start looking at into sort of ways of manipulating users' data and even manipulating the information that users can consume through the platform to make them better customers. So what's happening now is we can actually recreate a lot of these systems, but we can do it in, in essentially a trusted way uh, where there is no... Uh, where the user itself has control over their own data uh, and they have a general understanding of how the deterministic uh, ways that this particular smart contract or DAP can actually behave and they understand what kind of information is uh, published uh, to that and used by that, that DAP, which gets really interesting because this allows us to create, uh, instead of a, a messenger that has centralized servers and you're dependent on some company, we can do this completely peer-to-peer uh, completely decentralized, and you don't have to trust us. And then there's this other concept called uh, distributed autonomous organizations, where we could actually put the entire organizational infrastructure into smart contracts. So users themselves can have uh, direct control over how their software that they use on a daily basis gets built. Hmm. Now, what if, I mean, since we're very early days, we don't actually know what will become the for example, the the decentralized app platform for consumer applications. I mean, we know that Ethereum is great for fundraising, for example. Like, fundraising is arguably the killer app from Ethereum. You can have an ICO via Ethereum, which is super useful, and obviously it's got flexible smart contract development, but it still remains to be seen. Is this going to be a platform where people build consumer-facing applications, or will some other platform... Uh, arise. Do you think that if there were some other platform that came... Because, I mean, when I look at status, it looks like a consumer application. It looks like if there was a decentralized Instagram that you could interact with, you may want to interact with it via status. Like, maybe all of the uh, primitives, the file storage and whatnot is, is just handled by the Ethereum blockchain, and... I don't know, there's some way of deploying the Instagram decentralized front end to status and you interact with it through status. But what if, what about a world in which that Instagram that's decentralized happens to crop up on a different blockchain? Do you feel like you're tightly coupled to Ethereum? 
So basically, we're definitely working with Ethereum. Uh, and the reason being is the most public and most decentralized programmable blockchain. Uh, a lot of the, the best research is currently being implemented on top of Ethereum. But who knows what the future looks like? We may be dealing with a world or, or an internet of blockchains. And maybe uh, blockchains themselves aren't the best data structure for trustless decentralized systems. So what the future looks like uh, is still unknown, of course, but we will make sure that uh, we interface with as many as we possibly can. I guess one thing I want to add as well is that we are, we also like a lot of effort is spent on sort of the usability for developers and sort of making it a great experience to sort of for dApp developers and arranging hackathons and making like a great API and all these things. So I think it's a pretty great opportunity in, in that sense. It also because with more users, it will sort of be a more attractive target to use status as a platform to sort of target dApps for. And mobile is also a great sort of platform in general, just because you have access to all these like camera and geolocation, all these things. So I think there's lots of interesting things you can do. And we aim to sort of be the best place where you can do these kinds of things. What kinds of stuff have come out of those hackathons? There was one interesting one, which I had no idea about. I might get the details slightly wrong, but there was a hackathon in South Africa a few months ago. And there was something about how they used cattle as collateral. That was like a common thing that they, they used. Someone made sort of a, a dApp where you could tie that to a smart contract. So each sort of cattle had had some kind of, it was like a mini token or something like that. I probably got the details a bit wrong, but it, it's an interesting sort of novel thing, which no one, like it's not something we would have come up with, right? It's just having a platform that enables these kinds of local markets to do what they're already doing in real life, but maybe with sort of more legacy institutions like traditional banks or if it's pen and paper or I don't know, whatever it might be, and sort of just using technology to sort of slightly improve on it. Hmm. What did they do? They put cattle on the blockchain? <laughs> so it's a matter of having it as sort of collateral for, if it's, let's say you, have, you want to invest in some business, you want to build a farm or something, and, and maybe lots of people don't have traditional assets, so they would use cattle as collateral instead. Oh, okay. Uh, and it would be a way of proving that you, you sort of have ownership of the cattle in some way. Oh, that's kind of cool. So I could imagine, like, if you want to use cattle as collateral, there's not a good way of doing that via a mobile app. And why not use status for that? Right. So, I mean, it, it's like a very maybe fringe thing, but it's just an example of kind of novel things that people are doing that are completely unexpected, right? And the only way you get that type of unexpected, interesting results that may or may not be useful to people in various markets is by having a great platform where people can do these kinds of experiments. Absolutely. I mean, I think about that and I'm like, well, I, you know, how else would you implement cattle as collateral from a mobile app? You pretty much need an Ethereum. I mean, I guess if you, if you really want it to be decentralized, you have to use a, basically a mobile Ethereum client for that, for that use case today, at least. Unless somebody spins up a completely new blockchain. Let's talk about the technology a little bit. So one thing I found interesting was that you chose React Native, and I found that to be a bold choice. How has React Native served you so far? How's the performance? Uh, are there any areas of the app where React Native is like not as performant? Because I've, I've heard it can be sometimes hard to develop with. Sure. I mean, I think it's a trade-off like a lot of things. The main thing it gives us is sort of uh, productivity and largely because we can share the same code base. So we also, we're, we're actually we're writing script, which compiles to JavaScript, which is what React Native is. 
written in. And so we have both Android, we have iOS. Uh, we also can leverage some web tools for debugging and so on. We can also run tests in Node.js sort of uh, locally and things like that. So it does, there's a lot of benefits in terms of uh, having a shared code base. And also there's a lot of productivity gains we find in terms of using language like Clojure or ClojScript, just in terms of the abstractions you can use and so on. I guess in terms of performance, I think it varies. I think it's it's maybe you get it slightly more for free if you go the native route. And there are definitely some sort of parts where maybe it's not fast by default. It's not an unsolvable problem, I would say. It's more a matter of you, you try something and then you can always move things to native as it sort of turns out to be a bottleneck. I think for us, the bigger problem in terms of performance is the fact that we are running a peer-to-peer application on a resource-constrained device that's intermittently connected. So actually running the node, I think that's possibly a larger problem than sort of direct native side. So like net, you have to figure out how to do networking and retries and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So we also have, we have an application protocol on top of Whisper, which uh, implements some sort of basic uh, semantics that we use, like, for example, acknowledging of messages and online statuses and discovery requests and things like that. I guess in terms of the React Native performance things, like a lot of it is the fact that you have a JavaScript main UI thread and then you go back to native and you don't want to cross that bridge too many times. That's one problem. And, and when we get lots of incoming messages on the node, then sort of that has to be communicated and there's some subtleties in terms of how you communicate it and making sure it doesn't block the UI rendering and things like that. So it's something we've been working on, but it's, it's not an unsolvable problem, I would say. Totally. So... There is no backend, right? It's just a mobile client that interfaces directly with the blockchain. So I know there's also this idea of the status nodes. You're thinking about, or this has been implemented, where you have some peer-to-peer nodes where there could be a dece- basically a decentralized network that is relegated specifically to doing status-specific things. Can you explain what status nodes are? Sure. So, Whisper, keep in mind, Whisper is a dark-routed pub-sub communication tool. But messages uh, are somewhat have a, a fixed time to live. Uh, so they only bounce around the network, and there's no guarantee that it'll actually reach the end destination. So, for example, we're trying to build a, a user interface and a messaging sort of... Uh, application that has a lot of the same user experience qualities that you would expect from a normal application. But in dealing with peer-to-peer sort of systems, uh, particularly with Whisper, uh, you don't have things like uh, push notifications or, or offline inboxing. And offline inboxing is like storing the messages when your client is not online and uh, ability to retrieve them at a later date. And this is something a centralized service can uh, do quite well. Doing status nodes is basically how can we uh, retain a peer-to-peer network at the same time trying to give the same uh, user experience on that side. So people running uh, status desktop will be running some kind of offline uh, inbox in the network, and they can actually serve as uh, holding messages for for their friends for when they come back online. Mm, Interesting. Have you guys looked at Scuttlebutt at all? Uh, yes. What do you think of Scuttlebutt? Have you taken any inspiration from it? That's, and by the way, for people who don't know, it's like a peer-to-peer social network, basically, like, kind of like a peer-to-peer Slack. 
Yeah, I think uh, Scuttlebutt as a technology is, is pretty interesting. It doesn't have some of the the qualities that we're looking for. What I really like about Scuttlebutt is its ability to sort of be append only and have some kind of uh, direct history. But that's not a, a de- something that we want in our design. Okay. So there's also the hardware wallet feature, which you announced at DevCon. Explain what the status hardware wallet does. Right. So basically under uh, operating under the assumption that your devices are not the most secure and they could be hacked at any moment. But we know some there's some people out there who are actually holding large amounts of, of value and have been on like public trains with that in a very leaky client. And it would be very unfortunate for those kinds of uh, people to have their phones hacked or, or, or taken away from them. And that would be the end end of it. So that's pretty much what hardware wallets are in general are trying to do. They're trying to create some kind of gap between your untrusted device to something uh, to a form factor that has a much smaller surface area for uh, penetration. And really, the, the hardware wallet we're trying to make it is something that that should be credit card size, so you can still take it with you on on the go, but still have all the the functionality of a, a full fledged hardware wallet. So why would you want a status hardware wallet? As opposed to just like a off-the-shelf, like a Trezor kind of thing? Well, really, it just comes down to form factor. Okay, but do you does it interface with the status app in any way? Yeah, we, we already are implemented uh, for Go Ethereum, uh, and we're looking at how, creating a form factor that has a, a Bluetooth communication so you can actually use it on iOS as well. Okay, so what, if I wanted to use a hardware wallet in companion with my status client on the mobile app, what would I do? Uh, you would tap it onto the back of your uh, of your device. Uh, you'd press the setup button. You'd enter in a PIN. And then anytime you wanted to make a state change or sign a transaction, uh, you would put the card as close to the device as possible and then uh, press a button. Uh, there's also a signing phrase. lets the user know that it's a trusted screen and uh, it's a trusted uh, device. Right. Okay. So that's great because so that basically adds a significant degree of security to any kind of transactions that you want to make with your mobile wallet. As well as convenience, I would say in terms of the form factor being maybe more familiar. I, I mean, I use a hardware wallet, but it's it's kind of you you plug it into your computer and it's a, it's a bit of a setup and it's like a new kind of thing and it's a bit geeky still. Whereas a credit card is something. Like it's like is it like in in London or whatever you have these easy cards or whatever it's called Oyster cards and it's like a, it's more of a it's a more familiar user friendly interface I would say as well. So you guys are working towards V one production version of Status. What uh, stands between you today and getting to production? What are the things that you're focused on the most? So I would say it's uh, a lot of it has uh, performance in terms of uh, so there's. Um, getting the traffic usage down. There's also, we want to have a better onboarding experience uh, as well. And the main thing I would say is, is uh, we're doing a security audit because like next, so actually so right now we're running on testnet by default, but we want to be running on mainnet by default, obviously. So mainnet, this one is actually value transfer, uh, actual money being transferred. Uh, and um, I guess that's a bit of a process because we need to make sure that all sort of critical paths uh, when it comes to transactions are secure. So I would say that's the main blocker in terms of getting to production. And when you're messing around with it on a day-to-day basis, do you just walk around and do you use status to 
you know, just when you're dog fooding it to send messages to each other or to make payments? And do you try to dog food it on a regular basis? Yeah, we actually have an initiative, which is a catalyst for finding uh, things to work on uh, internal, uh, inside status, and that's called Status Every Day. So we all have this sort of buddy system that keeps us accountable for chatting with each other and making sure we can use it. Some days are better than others, or some nightlies are better than others, I should say. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm fascinated by the development process of software in this space, because from top to bottom, everything has a twist on, you know, if you compare it to traditional software development, like the incentives are different, the ways of developing back-end and front-end interfaces are different. Can you just maybe outline some of those differences? Why is status, for example, different than developing a, some SaaS company, like a traditional sales SaaS company, or developing a product at Google or Facebook? How does development work at a product like status? A lot of it is like alchemy. It's definitely an art and a science. Uh, and it's partly because uh, a lot of research is happening right now. And a lot of the protocols are highly experimental in of themselves. So there's that sort of uh, side of things. The other side of things is uh, is the sort of crypto economic or, or game theoretic uh, considerations you have to create, uh, which doesn't really crop up too much in status as an application itself. But it does happen when we start talking about how you design uh, systems that rely on smart contracts. And keep in mind, you also have to deal with, uh, in quotation marks, immutability. Once you deploy that smart contract, it needs to be uh, formally verified, ideally, and you need to have some very different upgradability path, let's say. I guess another thing is also the fact that we are completely open source, and we also using uh, we have this initiative called Open Bounty, which is essentially about incentivizing open source. So we use it quite heavily where we have specific issues uh, and we put up like a bounty in ST or F where if you solve that sort of GitHub issue and you submit a pull request that gets merged, you get that reward, right? So that's a way of sort of scaling our efforts and sort of creating a thriving open source community. So I think that's also something that sets it apart. So you guys raised $100 million in an ICO for the status network token. What role does the token play in the network? Incentivizing the storage of uh, offline inboxing, uh, as we mentioned before, is probably going to be the, the first use case. Another one will be talking about how you do username registration. Uh, for example, it is one way. Uh, so you can imagine that picture, like when you go to the supermarket uh, and you want to get a shopping trolley, sometimes they have like a coin uh, deposit sort of system. Are you familiar with this concept? So where you where you like put a, a quarter in and you get a shopping cart? Exactly. And then if you, when you're finished uh, with the, the username or, or finished with the shopping cart, then you can get your coin back. So this is a way that we can we can handle username registrations, but uh, we can also help incentivize uh, a very small degree actually returning usernames when, when people are finished with them because they would like to have their certain amount of value back. Well, this will be tied to an identity, which will become like a, a whole other thing. So you won't have to be logging into web pages like you do now on every, you know, creating new usernames on every single uh, website. The other side of things there is uh, how we're going to be approaching uh, public chat moderation. For example, there's a large problem uh, in the way that uh, 
chats are, are created and then moderated in, in the future. And you, you can see this on the uh, astrophysics uh, subreddit. I don't know if you've uh, browsed there recently, but I think there's roughly 10,000 astrophysicists, but they have to deal with one moderator who's gone rogue. And, and, and basically, uh, they put up a bunch of really bad CSS styling and anime. Uh, the sidebar is filled with profanity uh, and the same with the sticky threads. So this basically comes down to a, a problem well, which you call like one-time trust decisions, where this person was trusted at one point, but now everyone has to accept uh, his law as gospel. So how we're approaching public chats is, is, is quite different. So Oscar mentioned, you know, in Whisper, you can subscribe to a topic. And you can imagine this being something like subscribing to like some kind of hashtag uh, in a, a Twitter client and receiving any message that has that particular hashtag. But this is just a large data stream of information coming through. And you want to be able to filter that out in certain ways. So what we'd like to do is separate the people who generate rules from the rules themselves and essentially create a, a constitution uh, to public chats that anybody can submit rules to. But in, in this case, these rules would allow uh, certain people to be uh, participants, depending on a certain criteria, uh, whether you forward their messages or not, this sort of thing. And here you want to incentivize people creating good rules and propagating good rules. But how those rules are actually determined to be the best is basically by the dominant amount of usage or subscriptions to those rules from other clients. But of course, this is also quite taxing for the end user if you're putting all of this responsibility on users. Uh, so it'll allow you to allow the client to determine who your friends are who have already signed uh, messages or who are friends of friends who have signed uh, uh, certain messages or certain rules, I should say, allow you to automatically subscribe to certain rules, which you can then uh, opt out of if you if you wish. Uh, so ST will be a large component in incentivizing those kinds of rule sets as well. So status raised money through an ICO. Could you talk about the process of preparing to do an ICO and talk through some of the numbers in terms of what you raised? Sure. So our approach to, to the whole process was probably a little atypical. I mean, when we started, everything was really, really fringe. Basically, nobody even knew what Ethereum really was. And then certainly not really anyone could give us any sort of solid legal advice. Basically, and of the various contributors and the firms that did get it, they didn't really have any legal infrastructures in place to be able to participate in something like this. So basically, there was no norms. We basically did our best to pay diligence as much as we could and basically do everything we thought would put us on the sort of low end of the risk spectrum. So, I mean, the, the process itself, I guess it kind of looked like doing many things in parallel. Uh, we're speaking to many legal firms. We're doing a lot of idea generation, seeing what would pass the how he tests or not, looking at different jurisdictions as well around the world, which would be favorable, talking with potential contributors, what they'd like to see and what they wouldn't like to see, while at the same time trying to run, run the organization and build the application that uh, we had at the, at the time. And as we got more and more clarity, at least to the best of our knowledge, this also, I mean, all of this continued, but we also decided to do a sort of a bit of a roadshow through, through Europe and uh, throughout Asia as well. I think today, like there's there's a few different approaches. Some of them don't look. I don't know the specific details, and like I, I probably couldn't go into it anyway. But like the soft approach doesn't seem to be super favorable. Uh, my impression there is some consensus on how to go about things uh, these days. You mentioned something called the the Howie test. What is the Howie test? Ah, uh, yeah, it's um it's a very broad way of looking at uh, say securities, for example. 
So if you were to do something like a, like a token, I mean, depending on its functionality and its overall design, the intent of the organization and its promotion, you can kind of use this as a, as a sort of guiding stone, uh, so to speak. But it is incredibly vague, <laughs> so it, it isn't immensely useful. Mm. So what did the actual fundraising process look like? How much did you end up raising? Uh, sure. In sort of, I hesitate to talk about news dollars, but it's probably the easiest for your viewers. We rose roughly around like a, a hundred million US dollar equivalent. And so, as we were talking about before the show, this would look like a lot of money if you compared it to Series Seed or A or B or C round. But the way that ICOs are typically done, you're raising all of the money that your company would need to raise in its lifetime in a single round. So how does that factor into the amount that you would want to raise as a company? Yeah, so I mean, the way that we've designed our token, there's no inflation built into SNT. Uh, and there's, there's basically a fixed amount of 6.8 billion tokens. We basically sat down and tried to see what our runway would look like for, for development, uh, to try to figure out exactly what we'd like to achieve uh, and what we would like to promise. Uh, and a lot of that's in our, in our white paper and is focused uh, predominantly on uh, the development of, of sort of new technologies, uh, including uh, trust indicators and other sort of interesting smart contracty things. But the Carl and myself actually come from a background in software distribution, so before we even embarked on this journey, we, we tested a few sort of messenger-like products. We got our sort of uh, costs of acquisition under control, and, and we looked at our retention curves. And, and we're taking this back to our, our, our core mission, which is to try and reach uh, mass adoption for Ethereum. We believe we can build uh, a sustainable user acquisition engine to run every quarter and hopefully on board, uh, if not tens of millions of users, hundreds of millions of users. Why do you have to issue all the tokens at once? Why can't you issue them in, in stages? We certainly can. Um, in fact, we so basically how it's structured is we had 51% went to, to the public at the contribution event. 20% was reserved for the team. And this is to, to be allocated to, people, uh, to the core contributors to the, the software development. And then we have, uh, because it is a fixed amount, and the reason for doing so is because if you start introducing uh, more complexity, then you have uh, a larger attack surface, which is kind of interesting when you're talking about programmable tokens. But the other side of that is a matter of sort of faith. Like, I mean, you don't really know exactly what, uh, what you're designing. So the last portion is is basically uh, 29% sort of uh, reserve. And this is some tokens that we uh, that are locked for 12 months, and then we retain the rights to s sell those to new contributors periodically should we need to raise additional capital for the specific intent of further growing the network. I, I should also say that if it's proven that we don't need to do this, all of that will be burnt. Okay, I see. So you could theoretically raise more in the future if you really wanted to. Yes, but that was only because we specifically uh, designed that and it would be determined based on the market cap at the time. I mean, everyone's probably very familiar with the volatility in crypto as well. It needs to be very careful on how you actually structure that, that kind of sale. It would probably have to be done on a sort of slow, gradual basis. Otherwise, you'll, uh, you'll influence the, the overall market quite dramatically. And so the, the raise for the ICO, all that money goes to the company itself and then and then the way that that makes its way to the founders is through salaries potentially 
and and then the founders also vest some number of tokens over time. Is that the accurate uh, depiction of compensation? Yeah, something like that. So there's a couple of different things here, but to, to fully kind of understand that, like it, it, we have to look at what's what we're trying to do here. Like a, a common topic that came up when this sort of question came up is is this sort of idea of equity, right? Um, normally, you think about a, a sort of traditional company and you allocate this equity uh, to investors, you dilute it, and you raise through that. But before you could, we can even go into what what we need to explain about sort of networks and tokens around networks is we have to look at like why companies exist in the first place. And the sort of basic idea is that you want to reduce transaction costs. And transaction costs, I mean, here is this sort of mental abstraction, you know, like time that you spend filling out forms, waiting in lines, your mental load when you're, when you're doing things, uh, the cost of communication. So basically, companies reduce coordination costs. But now we live in this sort of internet era and we have uh, blockchains, which gives us some kind of borderless, non-physical legal jurisdiction. And we have uh, instant communication with the internet. And so now we have this opportunity to change how we organize socially. So you raise the money from the ICO and then you also have these tokens in reserve. So I'm just wondering how that translates to a, a compensation structure for the people working in the company. The tokens themselves go to the status DAO and the company itself just coordinated the uh, contribution event. Now, the status DAO would be something like the equivalent of, of a company, uh, except it's all uh, done in, in smart contracts. For those who don't know, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. And that will ultimately be paying out to various contributors. The, the company itself ends up being much more like a vestigial form of the DAO and it basically acts as some kind of uh, legal interface um, to legacy infrastructure. The 20% that I mentioned is basically what gets reserved for for the team and that also includes the the founders. So that depends on uh, how big we grow the core core team or core contributors. And what's the vesting schedule for the tokens for the people who work at the company? Yeah, so so that's basically a 24-month vesting period with a a six-month cliff. Do you worry that... So do you... Two-month or two-year vesting cycle where you have a a token that is instantly liquidable, uh, do you worry about that leading to a risk of the liquidity being reached for the developers before the product or before the Ethereum ecosystem is even ready for mass adoption of the product? Yeah, I guess it's a concern. That's definitely the case. Um, having said that, I think that the way that these uh, tokens work is they're, they're fundamentally driven by self-interest. So if you do get, like, I mean, if you do get tokens, um, it is your interest to see the market cap grow, which is exactly the reason why we started Status at all is because Carl and myself were so interested in Ethereum in the beginning. Uh, and we wanted to see the ecosystem grow as much as possible. As for uh, blockchain scalability, I mean that that's kind of why we're working on the Nimbus project, and we're getting we're we're working with the foundation to build out our own Ethereum 2.0 implementation. So I think at the end of the March there'll be a panel in Taipei about this, uh, about sharding in general, and there is a timeline that that basically extends over the next one and a half years, more or less, um, to build that out. With us having a direct hand in that, at least it's more under our control in terms of our ability to deliver. <laughs> I see. So, but after that two-year vesting schedule, 
the tokens are liquidable, right? Like you could you could if you wanted to liquidate your your entire stake. Absolutely. Okay. But that's not necessarily a bad thing either. Like, I mean, it, the idea is the, the DAO itself. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't because my, my heart and soul is uh, in, in this organization and in Ethereum has been since the beginning. And the reasons we got into it is be- uh, purely because of the technology in the first place. Having that said, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create software that the users themselves end up owning. There isn't supposed to be a necessarily a strong dictator or strong uh, sort of owning entity over this amorphous like network it's supposed to be uh software for the users by the users like it's really kind of like open source 2.0 ah so, so you see your role more of as a bootstrapping you're bootstrapping the DAO, and in your ideal future in two years the DAO would be taken care of by the community who has a stake in the DAO through those tokens exactly I see. Just a, a few more questions. The SEC seems to be looking at, at ICOs with a little more seriousness recently. How is the SEC treating ICOs today? Are they giving any serious guidance as to the legality of these things? Yeah, it's definitely a, it's a harder t- a topic to talk about. But we, uh, what I can say is we, we have worked with a few regulatory bodies in helping them understand the landscape. And I imagine that's what uh, the SEC is also conducting right now. There seems to be much of a sort of, sorry, there seems to be an exploratory process and where they try to understand and sort of talk with various organizations that are in this. From there, they try to make some assessments on that. I mean, our entity is based out of Switzerland and we did exclude the US participants from the contribution events. And it seems like the, the balanced regulatory bodies, like they really have an opportunity to support consumers uh, while at the same time leaving room for, for innovation. I do think that is kind of necessary, and, and it's great that it is happening because it is a sign that everything is becoming more mature. I mean, I completely agree with that. I think I heard a podcast with Andreas Antonopoulos recently where he was talking about this, the fact that you know what it looks like is going to happen is the United States is going to have an outdated perception of these things, and places like Switzerland are going to be ahead of the curve and they're going to get additional business in their country because of their sophistication in terms of uh, the securities. And, you know, obviously there are some risks in opening those things up to to public investors, but also there there is a risk in being super conservative or just overly draconian like the u.s appears to be leaning towards so i guess we'll find out yeah just in a sort of a addendum to that like what i find really interesting is that with these kinds of things happening and the ability to be able to move jurisdictions it kind of forces governments to start getting back i mean not that they aren't serving their, their people but it it forces them to be more competitive and serving their people as well so it'd be very interesting to see how this plays out over the coming decades Okay, Jared. Well, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you, and I look forward to seeing status develop. Thanks so much, Jeffrey. I really appreciate it. Wow.